Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, James Holland here. Now, before we start the podcast, I just want to tell you about my new TV series, Normandy 44, D-Day and the Battle of France based on my book of the same name. This three-parter sees me and former US Special Forces officer Dr Mike Simpson touring not only the invasion beaches, but the wider, deeper battlefield and discussing the 77-day campaign in much greater detail than other docs do on this subject. So, in a nutshell, there's more chat, less repeating what's been happening in the previous 15 minutes, a fair bit of busting of myths, and, we hope, telling you stuff you as viewers haven't already heard a hundred times before. It's going to be coming out in May, but we're looking to give 10 people an exclusive chance to see the series before anybody else and to review it for us. So, if you fancy a sneak preview, please do get in touch and we'll send you a time-limited link to the series. You can email us at info at typhoonpictures.co uk so that's info at typhoonpictures.co.uk but don't worry if you're not one of the lucky 10 the series will be available to absolutely everybody in may thank you and now here's al and i chewing the world war ii cud who man who man which is, of course, Geordie for Achtung, Achtung. You are That's listening definitely to ep- my favourite so far. <laughs> you are listening to episode 92 of We Have Ways of Making You Talk podcast, nearly at the Magic 100. Many thanks to Alex the Geordie, who got in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag We Have Ways and said, um, uh, here we go, don't know how quickly you're running out of Achtung, Achtungs, but Hooman, Hooman is the Geordie version. Um, apologies. <laughs> That's actually brilliant. That's Apologies actually brilliant. And to the entire northeast. That's fantastic. <laughs> and actually, I've just been and, writing about the Durham Light Infantry. Ah, the most most overused and abused um, infantry unit in the British Army in World War Two, by my reckoning. Yes. And actually, well, Dan- there isn't there isn't a DLI memorial in you know I want a big statue somewhere and put it in Consett or or somewhere like that That's up in Durham. So Dan, I think we should Dan- raise some money and make it happen. Dan Jackson's book, The Northumbrians, there's a lot about the DLI in that and about mm. about how you have the you know the the martial tradition of the border reavers and everything that then yeah, mutates yeah. and also via coal mining. So it's it's a tough, a tough, tough area. And so the DLI 
get this reputation for being super tough fighting men and then get used everywhere as a result. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. in, in 20, 2014 when it was the, uh, what would that have been, 70th anniversary of D-Day. I remember yeah. on the on the evening at um, Café Gondre, uh, Arlette Gondre's little cafe, she was sort of getting yeah. out the champagne and stuff and there were yeah. various sort of dignitaries there and veterans and stuff. And there was this guy sat in the corner with kind of really old, roomy eyes, little silvery tash, loads of, you know, medals on his on his blazer and a beret on, and mm. no one was talking to him. And I went over and talked to him. Um, he'd been in the DLI, and I said, oh, God, you know, you, you're obviously here in, in Normandy. He went, yeah, and just about every bloody other place as well. <laughs> God, he'd, he, I mean, you name it, he'd done it. He'd got there. He'd, he'd been yeah, all the way fantastic. through North Africa. He'd been Sicily, Southern Italy. D-Day, all the way through to the end of the war. Absolutely amazing. Brilliant. Anyway, so Brilliant. yeah, happy to, well, happy anyway, to have the Geordie um, there. Yeah, oh, yeah, we've got to have the Geordie. And at the risk of wasting, wasting another variant, Matt Baker, I'm not sure that's the one show's Matt Baker, also got in touch. <laughs> Matt Baker. Matt Baker got in touch with the vital question. Is there an argument for now then, now then, to be the Yorkshire equivalent of Achtung Achtung? Well, certainly if you heard someone saying now then, now then, you'd be running away, wouldn't you? Um, of course... The forbidden words. How's about that then? And of course, the truth is that as we launch into episode 92 of this crazy runaway train, yes, we are running low on language options at We Have Ways. If anyone speaks Bikya or Patwin, do please get in touch. I seem to have mislaid my German Bikya dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and if a gentleman who speaks Bikya does get in touch, it will be newsworthy. Because there's only yeah. one of him, apparently. There's only one of him. It's one of the only one. On one, one, one Bikia speaker in the, the whole fight planet. fight back starts here for Bikia. Um, yeah. uh, he may well be a fan, James. Do not underestimate the reach of the podcast. Now, talking about reach, <laughs> how about this? Neil Tompkins got in touch via email. Dear James and Al, I think I've caught all the podcasts to date. I listen in bed to fall asleep, so I might have missed some topics. Although this has led to some very strange dreams. As a 50-something, snap, I grew up reading Battle and Warlord comics in the late 70s and early 80s. We were immersed in tales of Daring Do, Union Jack Jackson, anyone? He was a sort of, yeah, I remember him. Um, Battle of Britain. Yeah, Battle of Britain. Uh, uh, I mean, I've got some, I mean, I've got some warlords in the downstairs loo here, to be honest, Big, big, fat compilations of them. Yeah, is nice. it worth discussing how the depiction of the Second World War has changed from the immediate war years through the 60s, mm. 70s and 80s, Action Man Escape from Cold It's Set and so on, to the current day? And are the cultural changes in how World War II is depicted changing as the conflict passes from living memory? The conflict is now history, whereas when I was a boy, it was something that Grandad, Grandad took part in. Anyhow, I'm thoroughly enjoying the podcast, although its use as post-coital entertainment is currently in dispute. <laughs> kind regards, Neil. <laughs> Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I think mean, that's a really cracking question, isn't it? Well, it, 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 I mean, to be honest, for me, it kind of comes to the comes to the nub of it, really. I mean, yes, we, we, I think I, I definitely fit that profile of someone who grew up who grew up in the seventies. I'm in my early fifties, you know, on Action Man, Airfix, the whole thing, and and it's worth bearing in mind that during that during the time I grew up, the most popular sitcom in the country was dad's army, you know, like a, like a, and then it ain't half hot mum, two programs looking back at the war, like nostalgically, but laughing at it and being irreverent about it as well, but also celebrate, but also, but also celebrating, particularly dad's army, celebrating the, the home guard, which is like a, you know, uh, such an important part of um, total war, you know, the civilian population, it being expected to fix bayonets if it came to it and all that sort of thing. I think it, 
it is really interesting. And then, the, you know, you, then you get, I think the, you get this sort of, the, there's an interesting shift as well in the 90s where it stops being, in American movies, for instance, it, stopped being, it stops being sort of action movie fodder or entertainment fodder. And you get this very serious gear, gear change via Saving Private Ryan, thanks to Stephen Ambrose and, and Band of Brothers and this sort of greatest generation thing and taking it all very, really actually quite, quite seriously. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you remember you Privates know, on Parade? I mean, all those well, yes, amazing of course you see. But, you know, you've got Terry Thomas sort of going, Glasgow. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> And exactly. all this kind of stuff. I and, mean, it's and, just and, amazing. Uh, yeah, and the sort of irreverence that you kind of have here. That, uh, uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, this is a thing that uh, that is probably even a separate podcast, sec- separate <laughs> from a podcast about the Second well, World War. Okay, here's my it's take a podcast on because... about the culture, cultural digestion of the Second well, World War. Well, our, our, our friend Guy Walters was, was thinking about doing a whole book about this, about yeah. how the war's yeah. been, how, how, how we view the Second World War and how that has changed. And he thinks it's changed substantially. I mean, it's very interesting yeah. that in the 1950s, um, uh, whoever was then um, chief of the air staff said, you know, we should really just stop all this kind of Battle of Britain commemoration. I mean, it's all just sort of nostalgic nonsense. Yeah, that really? was in the late 1950s. You know, it's all a bit embarrassing wow. now. I mean, what's really interesting, if you look at all the, all the films in the 1950s and just the very start of the 60s, so late 40s, 50s and 60s, mm. early 60s, they're all very kind of triumphalist. You know, Britain's a brilliant um, harnessing yep. engineering and in- industry yep, from yep. brilliant machines, whether they be mosquitoes flying low over, yep. you know, Norwegian Fords or whatever, all the dam busters, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's all that kind of stuff. And it's very kind of gung-ho. And you know what? We're freaking brilliant. Um, and then, of course, there is that yeah. massive shift. And that's what we were talking with Dan Tobin a little bit about, about the declinist view and the fact that you know, that's all tied up with yeah. post-Empire guilt and decline of Britain and a great power and all the rest of it. Then you get the kind of, you're, you're right, but in the Commando comics, it's still, you know, Sergeant Tom Sibley, you know, had been in yeah. with the Ayrshire's for three long years and he was fed up with war. Uh, and it's all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, um, but all those comics, I mean, one thing I would say about all those comics is in terms of the sketching, the, the, the actual images, the attention to detail is absolutely spot on. You cannot fault it. I mean, they're, 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 yeah. their historical detail is, is brilliant. So there is this, this massive shift. And now we have become, I think, much more kind of sort of mawkish. I mean, um, and that is also tied up with the fact that that generation which was just there is now almost not. So, you know, yeah. I'm not much younger than you, Al. And I do remember my mum sort of going, that's far too much butter on your toast. In the war, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, and all no, this kind no of stuff. Bananas. And no bananas. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. Banging on no and on bloody about bananas. rationing, my, you know, um, God's sake. Yeah, and my mum had to eat the pet rabbit, or at least the pet rabbit disappeared. <laughs> well, my mum had to eat their pet pig down in Cornwall. And uh, she always tells this great story of, uh, <laughs> uh, and it was called Pigoy. Uh, so it even had a name, which is, you know, as you know, is fatal. Um, uh, and she said, I just, she said, said, I can distinctly remember sobbing as I was eating Pigoy, but at the same time thinking he was really delicious. <laughs> Well, there you go. That encapsulates um, the the United Kingdom's relationship to the Second World War. It it was a terrible thing, but we, it was delicious. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but but I do think, and we were talking about this actually the other day, weren't we, with regard to Spike mm. Milligan? And I think one mm. of the things that that, that Britain has all or Britain has always had of sense of humour about the Second World War. You yeah. know, and I was I was reading this hilarious thing. Um, uh, this account by uh, I think I've read one of the extracts from Farley Mower over at Christmas yeah. and there's this brilliant bit where he, he lands on the on the beaches in southern Sicily 
and and his commander is this enormous kind of sort of giant of a man called Alex Campbell sort of yelling at him and feels he's yelling at him personally to storm this this hill just off the beach where yeah. there's a house and Italians are firing and he runs forward you know and he's panting and he's sort of slightly in the zone he doesn't know what's going on and and, and suddenly comes some wire and, and he thinks right we've got to get through it so he tells all his men he goes fix bayonets charge that hill and they kind of jump over the wire tearing their uniform and sh- and shorts and legs and stuff get to the top of the thing and all the time he's sort of going yeah charging with his bayonet but at the same time thinking why aren't the italians fighting back and he gets there there's a bunch of british commandos who've attacked the same hill five minutes earlier from the other side and already <laughs> captured it and the british commando goes up to him and goes cool that was brilliant love seeing that that was like charge of the light brigade i haven't seen that since the last errol flynn flick <laughs> And you know, and it's really funny because when you when you're looking at German accounts, it's sort sort of you know we received orders, and then you know I told my my you know my Panzer division to get into gear, and we went forward, and you know we engaged the enemy. You know, when you read the Italian um, accounts, it's sort of you know I glanced across at my men with their beating hearts, so proud, doing their bit for the, you know for Italia. Mm. I wondered how many would be kind of lying dead. What would their mothers be thinking then by this evening? Blah 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the Americans, and it's all kind of it's incredibly straight, um, and and not much humour, but quite gung ho. So you yeah. have these, these sort of massive four different sort of cultural um, takes, yeah, on the basically the same thing, which all yeah massively different, and it's just yeah fascinating. yeah 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 yeah. Now God, we've, I have we've, a question we've, for we've you. Quite a long from that, a long way from that. Yes, I have a question for you. Loving the podcast. Um, uh, oh, thanks. Loving the podcast. Uh, have you, can you send me an email because you're over fifty? <laughs> no, 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 I no, no, no way. Um, loving the podcast. Um, last week, uh, well, actually, it uh, it's gone out the day we're recording. So the second part of our Daniel Todman podcast. Yes, and we talked we we talked with Daniel about economic power, and um, yes. this is something that really struck me because we talked about um we talked about the the tungsten price manipulation thing right which i which i which i just love i think it's so interesting and it's so interesting yeah. that of course it had it didn't have the desired effect a thing he said was of course well you know you can do that to the germans if you want but what are they going to do their economy's like not normal anyway and you said yes of course they'll just print some more money which brings me to a question james holland whenever we talk about the second world war you always say that the germans do everything expensively they do everything in a way that that, that compared to the Allied way of doing things is uneconomic and inefficient. Well, to to use your own words, just print some more money. What difference does it make? <laughs> well, as you know, that if you do just print, well, I don't think they did just print some more money because obviously, well, if you do to... just print lots of money, then you you have this huge problem of um, massive um, inflation, which is what follows. Yeah, as I understand it, although my economics is not very good. Well, which after all was a thing that the Nazis had very much styled themselves as the as one of the answers to that they were not going to allow um, big inflation because there's, there's two. Yeah, because there's, there's like two or three pinch points before the war where their economy looks like it's going to suddenly overheat and slide back into inflation, and they and they have to pull back. Certainly during the rearmaments drive after 1935, uh, and the four-year plan and all that sort of thing, they get they very much get they very much get stuck in this thing of oh shit, it's going to cause inflation. We can't have that happen again. Everyone, ev- you know, that the, the massive inflation um, of the 20s was very much in people's minds still, um, and. But but you know there's a war on now. We're now talking about like 1942, 1943, when their economy 
you know. Okay, so how 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 they do do it is I, I don't think they do go around sort of um, printing vast amounts of money. Actually, I think what they do is they steal lots of money, so they have lots of bullion, for example. Yes. I mean, from the Greeks. Yes. Infamously, yes. you know, which is why the Greeks are so pissed off with, you know, when the when the Germans won't give them a loan and stuff a, a few years yeah. back. Um, it all goes back to that. So they absolutely completely fleece all the countries in which they um that they um they've conquered, um, but, and, and but, just grind the dust not, from France and everything. I mean, and all their but gold not, reserves, but, not, but not particularly um efficiently though. So they end up with this thing where before the war, the European economy is bigger than is bigger than is the biggest single economic block, you know. Yes. As it were in the yes. world when it's just ticking over and being allowed to get on with trading normally the germans then of course they, they you know the fall of france happens very quickly and suddenly the germans are going wow we're sat on this gold mine you know we've got france now we've got this massive industrial capacity in france and the lowlands and all that sort of thing and then what proceeds to happen is they steal a load of stuff and crash all those economies yes because what they what the what the germans don't sort of take into account is the, the, the reason why um, France is the kind of number one economy um, in Europe at the time and is this very wealthy comparatively um, industrialised nation is because they do have lots of cars um, and so their guys can get to work which means their workforce is more yeah. efficient which means they're earning more money um, their productivity yeah. is up so there's more money going in the coffers and all the rest of it goes around the yeah. problem is if you go in and steal everything then that workforce can't then work because they don't have anything yeah, yeah. and they don't have their cars and all the rest of yeah. it and I, I think because... I've said that stat before about you know you know they have um, yeah. the largest number of vehicles of any European nation um, in, in the in, in 19 on the 1st of January 1940 but by the 31st of December 1940, they've got 8% of what they had on the previous the start of the year. Because and the Germans then, have half-inched it all. Uh, and then what happens to the German economy as well is that they realise that, that that in order to in order to keep the war effort going, I mean, you have this really fascinating thing in 1941 where soldiers are given an armaments holiday because they're so concerned about skilled work workers going yes. to the Russia, Russian front. So they actually have this armaments holiday where guys would be... Um, uh, given furlough out the army to go back to work in an armaments factory, build the weapons they were going to use to conquer Russia, yeah, and then rejoin their units and 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 go to fight. And of yeah. course, that's all predicated on the idea that Barbarossa is going to only take eight weeks or or three months. They what they reckon three, on, yeah. twelve weeks, whatever. Yeah, and then then you're going to go back to normal. Everyone's going to go back to their factories. Exactly. But of course, there aren't there just aren't enough people in Germany. So they 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 they're taking workers from all over which yeah. then destroys the economies of the places they're taking workers from. So Europe goes from being, in before September 1939, from being the richest economic part of the, you know, economic blocks the wrong workers. After all, that leads us to, the, you know, that sounds like the EU. But like the richest part of the world, full stop, to completely flatlining. Um, with basically within it within a year of um, absolutely of the of the fall of France, you've got to ask yourself why, why is why is Hitler so keen to go into the Soviet Union in June 1941? It's well, because he's got to beat Britain. Yes, but 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 <laughs> does that mean going into the Soviet Union? The reason it means going to the Soviet Union is because he's run out of resources Stuff. you know they've, yeah. they've been like kids in a sweet shop in all these you know during the blitzkrieg years france the low countries you know denmark norway the balkans they just go in and they're like a plague of locusts and they just clean it out and, and, and then it's gone yeah. and it's gone forever because you know all the economies of all yeah. those countries are absolutely screwed 
So to yeah. find the food, to find the, the fuel, to find the resources that they so desperately need because they can't get to the world's oceans. They don't have a large enough merchant fleet. Um, they're being blockaded. They're stuck in the Baltic. They've got a very small bit of, of line. They're actually stuck in the middle of Europe. They simply cannot access the world's oceans and, and therefore they cannot access the world's resources. So they've got to get them somewhere else. So that's why they go into the Soviet Union in June 1941 because if they don't, they're going to run out of everything. The whole point about going yeah. to the Soviet Union is to get those resources. And obviously that, fulfil their ideological aims as well, but 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 that's first also foremost, but that's also why it has to be a twi- a quick a twelve week cam- campaign. Of course, they can't they can't get stuck into anything longer because no, they know. I mean, I mean, one of the other things that I find really really interesting is as as part of this picture of the German economy, uh, the German imperial, the Reich economy, the Greater Reich economy, is that the French have all these aircraft factories, and the Germans obviously think. Right, we've got our hands on their aircraft factories. We're going to be churning out um, whatever we want in France. And it doesn't happen. And right. this In total, really... 7,300. Yeah. In total. Yeah, yeah. And at one point, there's one month where the, you know, the Germans are churning out however many thousands of aircraft and they get like 140 out of all of France because yeah. they, just can't, they just can't make it work. And right. the French are either are either you know literally sabotaging chucking their sabots into the machines or whatever but they just they just can't get it going and after all they've pinched all the skilled labor that you, you know that it's this very it is this incredibly short-sighted thing where where they think well that's that country's rich rather than let's keep it rich and benefit from the mutual the mutual wealth that that will generate imagine if they treated france well <laughs> it could have really, you know, it didn't yeah. steal all their vehicles. That they actually yeah. said, okay, we're just going to let you run. Um, and it'd be great. But we're going to pay all your workforce. And, you know, I mean, Jesus, they would have been so much more better for them. But, I mean, thank God but they, they did. But they did, relatively speaking, treat France very well. You know, you compare it to what's going on in the greater government, you compare yeah. it to what's going on in the Watergau, you know, that, that, you know, what they're not, you know, and there is a, there is this strange gradation in the, yeah. in the Reich as well, in yeah. the Greater Reich, of, of, you know, states that they treat reasonably well. For instance, the Danish, Dan- Denmark, is essentially left intact. Yes. Um, politically, and uh, its civil service is left intact, which is Tim Snyder's argument about why yes. the Holocaust, Holocaust doesn't really happen in, doesn't happen in Denmark, because Denmark is left legally intact as an entity. Whereas mm. what so it can get in, out its, 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 so it can get it, its Jews out of there. Yeah, and it has control of itself, whereas in Poland what happens is they, they, they create failed states, they yeah. collapse the Polish state, and the Polish state in the in the east of Poland collapses at least twice because the Russians yes. come in, collapse it, and the Germans seize it, collapse it, and there's, there's, there's literally none of the sort of tent poles of a normal state legally exist anymore. And so yeah, you've yeah, got yeah, this sure. you, across the across the Reich, you've got this gradation of you know France, which is treated kind of as a as at least an industrial society and at least one that has culture and art of of its own that's to be to be kind of. Uh, to, to a certain extent, enjoyed and uh, and encouraged, which is quite which is quite interesting, and then Poland, which is well, you know, when we get the chance, once we've killed, I mean, basically, what happens? Once we've killed everyone. Well, once we've killed all the Jews, then we're gonna then we'll starve everyone else to submission, and we'll starve yeah. the, we'll starve the Ukraine out, and we'll starve uh, uh, Belarus well, yeah, out. We, we, we we've sort of touched on the hunger plan before, but I mean, yeah. you know, the other thing is, is why do you think you know every time they're they're sort of gassing people? Um, gassing Jews and so on. You know, why do you think they're kind of pulling out all their teeth? It's because they need the money. You know, they yeah. need the gold. Yeah. So they are. They are. You know, th- this this gold is being melted down. It's being. You know, it's being pulled out of the teeth, put into a big sack, put on a train, sent to Berlin. There's various foundries where these gold teeth and others are, and rings and all the rest of it are all sent, and they are literally 
all melted down. It's absolutely amazing. And that's because their economy is so rotten. And then, of course, you've got Operation Bernhardt, you know, which yeah. is the plan to undermine the British economy by printing lots of British banknotes. Um, <laughs> um, but the British get on top of that very, very quickly. Um, and in the end, Kaltenbrunner, who's over, who takes over from Heydrich as the, as the head of the um, uh, Reich Intelligence Service, um, he basically just starts using it himself. Um, yeah. and setting it up and just just using it for his own purposes and for his own little <laughs> intriguing and all the rest of it. I mean, it, it never works as a kind of, you know. But they are, they're, so they're, they're printing lots of money, um, but it's British money. Incredible. Well, okay, it's time for a short break. But before we do, I just want to pose a fascinating question from one of our listeners, William Chambers, who DM'd us at our new podcast Twitter handle, at WeHaveWaysPod. William asks... James, right, okay, I'm, I'm in the clear on this one then. James, your claim about wartime evacuations by sea always being successful got me wondering about the Germans trying to get home across the Baltic or the British wishing they could get away from Singapore, which begs the question, did the British have to surrender to the Japanese when they did? Whoa, well, an absolute Whoa. cracker, William. James, uh, we expect we demand an answer. Uh, we'll take a break now. He's going to have a think. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to We Have Ways. Um... Now, we're the first to admit when we get something wrong, and I'd like to kick off this part of the pod with a strong sense of humility. As you may know, we got our metaphorical knickers in a twist recently about World War II-themed pubs. One or two of them we questioned, wondering if they did in fact have anything to do with the war. Well, Richard D. got in touch rather forcibly via Twitter. He said, (laughs) James quit to rubbish the inclusion of the shiny chef on the World War II-themed pub list, but HMS Sheffield was a light cruiser that pursued the Bismarck and covered Arctic convoys that was nicknamed... The shiny mm. chef. Yeah, well, it's so the we mayor go. Cooper, you know. Yeah, um, uh, another one we called into question was the Bells of Peover. JP got in touch to remind us, love the podcast. Um, read the Bells of Peover. Patton was billeted in nearby a Peover Hall and in the run-up to D-Day met with Eisenhower at the Bells of Peover, which is still I really love this pub. The US I really flag. like this pub. My name's Patton. I've got a really high squeaky voice. Ah, oh, could I have a half a mile, please? <laughs> and a... <laughs> and some potato chips. How did you not give me them? I'm going to shoot you with my pill-handled revolver. <laughs> have you got any... Is there a bomb and I can slap? <laughs> right, okay. And do so, up your top um, button and straighten your tie. 
<laughs> so, yes. James, this Singapore question, assume we There was know never nothing. a plan to evacuate. So, it, it, you know, had they done, who knows, it might have been successful. Um, but there weren't enough ships there. Um, uh, and not helped by the fact that two of our um, our battleships got um, uh, the Prince of Wales and I can't remember the other one off the top of my head. Uh, the Hood. No, not the Hood. No, the Hood's Prince of Wales and another one got sunk just beforehand. Um, so that wasn't good. Um, the problem with the whole Singapore thing is, is just everyone was just completely caught short. No one was expecting to have to come up against the Japanese in these circumstances in the way they did in early part of 1942. And the tactics that we used against them were two piecemeal. So we had quite, on paper, we had quite a large army there, quite a, n- a number of, of forces there. But they were very polyglot. They were very mixed. They were undertrained and poorly equipped. And everyone had kind of underestimated the capabilities of the Japanese. No one expected this kind of, this this incredibly fast-moving... Churchill also didn't know what was at Singapore. No. He thought it, literally thought it was a fortress. Yes. And had been had convinced himself it was a fortress because he hadn't been basically hadn't been paying attention. Uh, yeah, that, and you get, I think that's true. Because in the 30s, in the thir- in the 20s and the 30s, the British government keeps committing to um, reinforce and rebuild the base at Singapore and then putting it off. And they, they put it off, they put it off, they put it off. So so it's never actually the thing that, that um, people assume it yes. at the time assumed it was. And it's not a, it's not necessarily a defensible position. The, and this is it's classic British Army. This opening phase of an encounter with a new enemy, you get completely yep, caught with totally. your trousers down. You've no idea how they operate tactically. Yep. You've probably got you've got soldiers from all yes. over the world who haven't all had the same training, who are from different bits. Don't some of them don't even know why yep. they're there. I mean, you, you. I mean, one of the. I mean, one of the interesting things that, that the British Army has a, a recurring problem with in the Far East is their soldiers don't really know why they're why they're no, there. It is it's a, easy, it's a it's really easy to... mixed force. The troops there. I mean, obviously there are some yeah. Brits there, but there's some Aussies there. There's there's um, loads yeah. of Indian troops as well. You know, so it's, it's a real mixed bag. That they're, they're and as I say, then they're, they're just not well trained. They haven't really thought about jungle training. And the problem is, is they get caught out in penny packets. So so they're constantly yeah. trying to kind of sort of. Um, meet the flood uh, and so they get caught caught off in isolation where they are completely outnumbered so overall Yamashita General Yamashita's only got kind of 36,000 troops against you know 80,000 Brits or whatever yeah yeah but at the point of impact he's massively superior in every single time and, and, and there are there are moments so, where there is kind of sort of some quite brave fighting and all the rest of it. I mean, for example, I mean, I remember going going um, to one of the gun positions last year on Singapore Island and you know the guns are all facing south um, but the Japanese were attacking yeah. from the north, so they're all facing the wrong way. Yeah. And so, you know, it was potentially yeah, yeah. quite a powerful kind of gun battery there, but it couldn't really be used because they weren't in the right direction. You know, because you were, it, they're yeah. there to kind of see off any kind of naval threat. But but what what you've just described there, um, uh, overwhelming application of force, in, that's that's Falgelb. That's of the course, it, uh, yeah, that's yeah, the, the similar the, the similarities principle. are legion. <laughs> they just are yeah. legion time and time again if you look at the imperial japanese in world war Two, particularly at the start and then you look at germany it's the same thing you know not very successful economies uh um haven't got enough stuff quite impressive kit at the beginning of the war but sort of getting a little bit obsolescent by the end all this kind of stuff you know and super motivated super, motivated, super yep. politically motivated yes. um militarily yes. motivated very clear objectives um uh and you know, using the army as a weapon really, really, really Absolutely. effectively. But, as but I mean, just as the British 
just as the British get caught with their trousers down, go away, figure it out. Takes them a year or two to go, oh, hang on a minute. Um, uh, and have a massive, massive shakedown and a refigure, find the right people to do the leading. The Japanese and the Germans end up overextended massively. And peaking too soon. Um, unable, you know, peaking un- too soon. I mean, in the case yeah, of the Germans. I mean, I mean soon, you know, yeah. you have these, I mean, the, 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 the Japanese air forces, whether they be naval air forces or army air forces, are absolutely stupendous. In, in terms of kind of quality, you know, overall, per man, they're in a different league to literally anyone else. I mean, you know, if you're a new pilot, yeah. you, uh, a naval pilot, and you're 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 going to be a zero fighter, for example, um, in your zero, you would have 500 hours in your logbook before you start. That's at the start of the war when everyone else is sort of you know thinks 150, 175 is plenty. You know, so they're they're just Blimey. in a different league. But the problem is, of course, is is the attrition rates are are, are high because you know operating from an aircraft carrier is incredibly. Um, is incredibly tough and difficult. Um, and actually, I've just that just reminds me about about the film Midway, which I've just seen. But 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 oh, yeah. but um, um, you know, you, once you start to attrit these incredibly good naval forces, these naval pilots, there's nowhere to replace yeah. them because they haven't got the resources, the time, the capacity to train them up to that same level. So suddenly, there's this yes. huge qualitative and quantitative drop off that they can't keep up with, while the well, Americans also, are doing exactly the opposite. Or- but also, um, uh, you know, if you think about Midway, the, the different, the, I mean, there's a different kind of attrition in naval um, uh, uh, naval air power, isn't there? Because if you sink the aircraft carrier, you've attrited the entire thing. Yes. Whereas yes. if you bomb, if, say, Battle of Britain, if you bomb Manston, right, um, they fill in the crater. Yeah. And they fly new Spitfires in from 12 Group, yeah, you know, yeah, or yeah. from 13 Group. Whereas if you sink an aircraft carrier. Yeah. They've uh, gone. That, you know, it's this sort of. Very final form of attrition. Yeah, and there is, um, and it, uh, and the, it, the Japanese it, have no industrial answers. Exactly, to. and there is that. There's that amazing seven minutes at midway, where at ten twenty a.m. on the fourth of June, nineteen forty-two, America is losing the Battle of Midway, and and by association, probably the war on the Pacific. And seven minutes later, with three air, three of the four aircraft, Japanese aircraft carriers burning and wrecked and sinking, they're winning it. I mean, it is just absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, and. Obviously, with those aircraft carriers going down, as you say, that's a whole load of pilots that are going down as well that are super trained, yeah. super motivated, super brilliant, and they've gone. And, you, and they are literally yeah. irreplaceable. So, yeah, yeah. But, Singa- but yeah. Singapore. But Singapore, yeah. <laughs> We've done it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Singapore, you know, it's not a good moment by any one stretch, uh, any stretch of the imagination. But the other thing, of course, is that the people are willing to surrender because, you know, back in back at the end of the second of, of the First World War, you know, the Japanese have been very generous um, to their prisoners. You know, they hadn't gone into this kind of ultra-nationalistic, mm. kind of sort of quasi-shogun kind of weird honour code thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they treated prisoners pretty well. And I think no one was expecting the barbarity that the Japanese um, imposed on POWs. And so you might have fought on a little bit harder if, 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 if you'd known that was what was coming. I mean, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a bad business. Well, that's certainly then what that, but that even that message, you know, doesn't quite get through uh, for quite, for quite a while, doesn't it? Because the British, the British really can't make anything stick until, until 43 and until, that, you know, after the Arakan offensives and all that sort of stuff. No, I know, and I think I think what you were, you know, but also what one has to consider is is that even Britain, which is the kind of sort of premier global trading nation in the world in 1939, has suffered in the Great Depression that that has hit the world yeah. at the end of the 1920s and beginning of the 1930s, and you know its global reach is absolutely astonishing, and and the cost 
of keeping all these places not only armed and equipped but up to speed is just absolutely yeah. enormous. And obviously from September yeah. 1939 yeah. onwards, we've got our attention on matters that are closer to home. So if Singapore is a yeah. kind of considered a kind of sort of a bit of a kind of military backwater, it's hardly surprising, frankly. You know, it, it's just, you know, yeah. you've lost your army at Dunkirk. You've got to create this new army. You've got to build lots of new aircraft. You've got to kind of keep the, the, the Navy yep. off. And you've got to absolutely deal with the most pressing threat, which is keep North Africa and the Mediterranean and, and, and all that um, uh, yeah. and so on. And that is where your attention is. And there is a kind of, there's a, a perception, albeit a, a clearly a politically naive one, that America, which is not in the war at this time, has sort of got the eyes on the whole Far East thing and with Japan yeah. um, and, and sort of got it under control because America is is Japan's biggest supplier. It is his big supplier of oil, of steel, of uh, many other resources. And, and it sort of seems to be all in hand. I mean, it seems crazy that the Japanese, as they're trying to sort of emerge into the modern world, would take on the United States. So, yeah. and, and so, yeah. you know, in retrospect, it seems naive. But at the time, you can see how that thought process happens. The thing is, though... After all, the, the, the Japanese do, re I'm going to use a, an expression I loathe, they do reach out to America, don't they, to say, hey, can we can we talk about this? And Roosevelt's not interested. And uh, arguably, arguably, that's the big what-if moment, actually the biggest what-if moment in um, uh, American-Japanese relations, isn't it? Is that, is that then, then Sakurai's deposed, Tojo comes in, and it's not Sakurai, it's Kono. Kono is the Prime Minister. So, oh, it's yeah, Kono, yeah. it's not yeah. Sakurai. Okay. You've been reading about him in Firma 44, but Al. That's Sakurai. Yeah. Yes, I have been doing your audio books. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank it's you. like being inside your yes, head. Anyway, well. that's it for today. <laughs> thanks for listening, as always. <laughs> An extra thanks to everyone who got in touch via Twitter and email. We may not be ideal listening post-coitally, but there are a number of scenarios in which hearing James dismiss the career of James Gavin is entirely appropriate. No, I'm rehabilitating him. I'm rehabilitating comments. him in Sicily. Oh, you're working, you're working it back, are you? Yeah. Questions, comments, grievances by Twitter using the hashtag WeHaveWays and also we have at WeHaveWaysPod. The email address is WeHaveWaysPodcast at gmail.com for people at risk of the coronavirus. But we're the lads! <laughs> Cheerio! Cheerio!